0: (laughs) all right how are you today henna
1: i'm doing pretty good anna we got the most delicious brunch this morning yes we did it was so good we split this delicious um you gotta split a sweet and a savory yes and that's always the best way to do brunch because if i just get sweet i
0: sometimes feel gross for the rest of the day yeah if i get savory then i miss out on the sweet thing
1: exactly i feel like i've missed out exactly it's like brunch is supposed to you're touch base to miss, with all the flavors all the flavors it's on the, the only palette. time when you
0: can have dessert and that's acceptably a meal yes <laughs> but if i oh, eat man. just that i'm at the age now <laughs> well then i have stomach issues or i just like feel nasty the rest of the day yeah
1: or you get like a sugar headache yeah because you just yeah. put
0: sugar in your body which your body can burns really quickly Uh huh. and i feel like sluggish or i get hungry again uh-huh which i'm hungry anyway <laughs>
1: You know what I was thinking about this morning was um, The Spy Who Dumped Me, that movie. Oh, I love that movie. That's such a great movie. That is such a funny movie. Um, Anna and I watched this movie a week ago. I had a ladies night at my place. So to- fun.
0: It was so fun. Hannah <laughs> made a mac o lantern. This was around Halloween. I don't know when you will be listening to this, but here it was around Halloween. And then she made like a, like a mac and cheese jack-o'-lantern in a bunt pan it I was, was delicious inspired by the food network and so good. everyone made fun of me for it i, I was not, just so excited i did not i did not And i was, I was my cheerleader i Mac o' lantern. yes because <laughs> it's mac and cheese <laughs> literally it cannot go wrong
1: best friend trophy right here thank you <laughs> they were all stupid don't they Those want dummies. to eat
0: mac and cheese because yeah. i always want to eat mac and cheese <laughs> so fun
1: Yeah. How are you doing, Anna?
0: I'm good. Hannah and I went to a really cool breakfast yesterday that they put on because it was National STEM Day. It was fabulous. It was beautiful. And so STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics. Which is awesome because um, as women in tech and STEM, I don't know, I think STEM is a really awesome field. And I think... It's really important that we support the outreach
1: and education of it.
0: I think a lot of people don't, women and men alike, don't go into STEM... It's mostly it happens to women. It does happen to men, too. Mm-hmm. They don't go into STEM because they believe like they're not smart enough. Uh-huh. I think it's so important to be like, you can do this. Like yeah, having yeah. a support work, work, I was really lucky. We, Hannah and I were both really lucky. We had parents who believed and supported us the whole mm-hmm. way. Thanks, mom and dad. Thanks, mom and dad. Not everybody has that. Mm-hmm. Everybody should feel supported and driven to do what they want to do with their lives. Yeah.
1: So it was this really great opportunity for all of us who are in STEM to donate towards programs to help those that are disadvantaged. Yeah, exactly. So they can get the right classes and the right resources to And just to have a group of people who believes in them. Yeah. I think is more important than anything. It's not about how smart you are.
0: It's just having groups of people who tell you you can do it is invaluable.
1: So invaluable. Because at the end of the day, you just need the excitement for it and... If you work hard towards it, I believe you can achieve it. I very
0: much agree. So it was a beautiful breakfast. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, and the really, breakfast was delicious. It was a really nice way to start this Saturday. It was the nice. Friday. I don't know. It was also a great start to Saturday. Yeah, that's true. It was really. But we like went to this beautiful breakfast, and I was like, I guess we have to go to work now. <laughs>
1: But the day definitely went by faster because we had that nice kickstart. It was so nice. And I went to Target after work. Yeah? Did you get anything good? I
0: got a new makeup sponge because I'm traveling next week. And I really like makeup sponges, but you have to get them wet. Mm -hmm. And then, like, if I travel, I put it in a plastic baggie and then I feel like it never dries dries out. out.
1: And then you pull it out and it's cold. And still, like, slimy wet. Yeah. So I got
0: one that has, like, a plastic traveling case with, like, air holes in it. Heck yeah. Yeah. So it's awesome. I did not buy any more stuff, even though I wanted to. I'm so
1: proud of you. Thank you. I definitely go into Target and everything looks so pretty and I just want to put it in my car. I wanted all the
0: stuff. I wanted all the stuff. Uh I walked through the cosmetic aisle. I only bought a sponge. I'm so proud of you. Please hold for applause. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I only bought one sponge. Even though there were two cool-looking oh sponges, god. I only bought one sponge.
1: We really love Target. The other yes. day, I messaged Anna, and I was like, "Anna, want to hang out?" She's like, "Oh my gosh, we can go on a Target date." <laughs> That's how much we love Target. It's just so nice. There's always <laughs>
0: Starbucks in and or near the Target. You get a cu- You get, you a, get latte. a latte. Starbucks has Christmas lattes out now,
1: people. Oh my gosh, we went and had one yesterday at oh lunchtime. God. It was amazing. Oh my god. This is not an ad for Starbucks, but it's if not. Starbucks but... wants to sponsor us, we are hundred percent down for that. <laughs> <laughs> Should we maybe start focusing on the topic of the podcast? <laughs>
0: Let's actually talk about. This. Let's do that. So, before anything else, I'm Anna and I'm Henna, and this is. But, but it is a rocket, rocket science. science where we dive into a new rocket science and aerospace related topic every episode. Uh huh. This one's kind of a cool one. It's this a little bit more obscure
1: and futuristic.
0: Futuristic is a much better adjective. Nice job. Thanks.
1: So we're going to be talking about the space elevator in today's episode. Getting a little bit more science fiction-esque. Yeah, if you and will. we learned a lot doing the research for this episode.
0: I had like I feel like a space elevator is kind of something that's almost It's brought up seriously but also semi-jokingly right. in the aerospace right. community. You'd be like, "Well, when we get that space elevator." And I had had a faint idea of what it was, but it was really interesting to like dig into it a little bit further.
1: Yeah, for me, it was, it turned, the research made it go from just this wild idea to like, wow, so many people have invested so much time and energy into all the different components of the space elevator to make it a reality. Yeah,
0: exactly. It also made me realize, I highly recommend you research this on your own if it's something you're interested in. There's also a lot of sham resources out there about it. Mm -hmm. And I will give you some of the ones I found. Because this technically doesn't exist yet, it's really easy for there to be phony research out there Mm -hmm. about it. We found a lot of cool stuff. I also found a lot of crap. Right. So keep that in mind. Yes. But Hannah's going to start us out with the origins of the space elevator.
1: Yes, I am. I actually didn't know what this was. Yes. So I didn't know what it was either until I started researching it. The origin story of the space elevator begins back in the late 1800s. So we have these three major fathers of rocketry, Robert H. Goddard, Herman Oberth, and Konstantin Tsiolkovsky. So if Goddard sounds familiar to you,
0: that would be the Goddard Space Center. Yes.
1: So Tsiolkovsky is the person that we want to focus on here. So Tsiolkovsky was famously associated with the ideal rocket equation. And this ideal rocket equation provides the formula that accounts for the change in a rocket's velocity, the delta V, as its mass continues to reduce while using fuel during flight. Aerospace engineers
0: love the rocket equation.
1: We have used it so many times in homework assignments. They talk about it all the time. All the time.
0: I use it all the time. We talk about it all the time. Everybody's like, well, the rocket equation. Yes. Rocket equation's a big deal.
1: It's a big deal. You'll hear the term delta V thrown around. All the time. All the time. In one of Tsiolkovsky's collection of essays from 1895, this collection was titled dreams of earth and sky historians wow. found yeah isn't that what a, a lovely name what a lovely name historians found what they believe to be the earliest brainstorm of a space elevator he was inspired by the eiffel tower on a trip to paris so in his essays he imagines these giant towers situated at the equator that stretch way into earth's atmosphere and at the top of these towers. Are what he calls celestial castles. I want a celestial castle. Doesn't that sound so pretty? <laughs> Magical.
0: Yes. Also, Hannah and I were going through these notes earlier and she brought up the good point that she didn't know the Eiffel Tower was that old, and neither did I.
1: Yeah, so I looked up when it was created, and it was just about two decades before this essay was written. I didn't know that. Yeah, that was me so neither. interesting. He also documented in this collection of essays how anyone standing inside the celestial castle would feel like they're looking up at Earth instead of down because the pull of gravity would be flipped. And that's because as you're climbing this tower, you have two counteracting forces. One is the pull of gravity, and then one is the outward force of the celestial castle. So Anna will go a bit into this more.
0: Now that we kind of get the idea of an origin of space elevator... Mm -hmm. I think it's important to talk about what a space elevator is. Yes. So it's not it's not just a giant elevator shaft that goes to space. It is kind of, but I picture like an elevator and you get in the little box and you push your button. You know what I mean? In yeah. your apartment building or, I don't know, the mall or something.
1: That's exactly what I pictured before Office. we did this yes. research.
0: I did too. It is an elevator, but by the simplest of terms. And the best way to start this out explaining it is you have to understand how a satellite orbits Earth. I did a lot of research about trying to find good metaphors for this, and this is the best thing I found. If you're standing in a giant football field, there is nothing obstructing you, and you were to throw a baseball, that baseball would travel along the curvature of the Earth until eventually hitting the ground, until it succumbs to gravity and hits the Earth. So we'll say it goes 100 feet or so. And now imagine you have a cannon, and you can shoot a cannonball with a high initial velocity. That cannonball would, again, follow the curvature of the Earth It would go a lot farther than your baseball until eventually succumbing to gravity, like the baseball. Mm -hmm. So it would follow along until it gets pulled to Earth by gravity. We're saying there's nothing obstructing it. But what if every time the cannonball started to fall, it missed the Earth? That would be an orbit. The idea is that the speed of a satellite is adjusted so that it falls to Earth at the same rate that the curve of the Earth falls away from the satellite. Essentially, a satellite is just consistently falling. It's being pulled down to Earth by gravity, but by the time it would get to the Earth, the Earth has already curved away from it. it. Just continues to fall. That's how a satellite orbits Earth. Or anything orbit Earth. That's how asteroids orbit Earth and meteorites orbit Earth. That's a g- great way to describe orbits. Thank you. I read a whole bunch of websites <laughs> trying to find my favorite one. I love it. That's why rockets go up and then sideways. So if you look at rocket launches or you look at rocket orbits, they don't just go straight. They have to go up and then sideways to get that orbit. Right. But what if we could harness the Earth's rotation, so the Earth rotates, what if we could harness that Earth's rotation and use that to gain our horizontal force? Instead of going up and then sideways, the Earth is already turning. What if you could harness that? That's the main concept of a space elevator. Space elevator would have four main components. A giant anchor in the Earth, probably pretty far down. A tether, which would connect to the anchor, and then a counterweight. So a counterweight could be a space station, it could be anything that's in orbit, So you would have this object orbiting the Earth, you would have the anchor deep in the ground, and then you would have this tether connecting the two objects. And then you would have a climber. The idea would be that you would have this climber, which is effectively your elevator box or carriage. Stuff would get in the climber, and then that would climb up. Right. So your satellites, your payloads. Exactly. Anything spacecraft need. Yes. People. Supplies. It would get on, so you would get in the climber, which is attached to this tether. The climber would travel up the tether using some force, propellant, fuel, and it would get up to this counterweight. Mm -hmm. And then from the counterweight, that would be rotating horizontally. You could launch objects into orbit. So it would be launching horizontally because the Earth is going horizontal and it would have to constantly be falling to orbit Earth. Got it. We will post some pictures and some websites on our website to try to help you picture this. That's a great idea. We actually watched a really cool YouTube video that did a great job illustrating this, if you have yes. trouble picturing it in your head. Act. Hannah found it. We, she really, um, he actually does great videos. I hadn't heard of him until we watched this video. He and makes
1: these like 10-minute videos on all sorts of technological topics, and they're so digestible. It's awesome. We will link that in our sources. It was a great video, and I think that could help you picture it. So essentially, while I was
0: doing this research, it occurred to me, that in order to have a tether connecting an object on the Earth to an object in space, the object in space would have to be moving at the same speed as the Earth rotates. Yes. So that they could always stay in the same place. Mm-hmm. So the tether would be straight. Because otherwise you could have an object rotating that's not going at the same speed as the Earth, and the tether wouldn't be and then you get a mess. up and down, and <laughs> then it could like circle around the Earth, and bad stuff can happen. Right. So it occurred to me that the tether would require a geosynchronous orbit. A geosynchronous orbit, if you were standing on the ground, it would look like it was in the same place all the time. Mm-hmm. You can only have that on the equator.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The uh, space elevator would have to be on the equator, and it would have to be a geosynchronous orbit, which is about 26,199 miles, or 42,164 kilometers from the Earth's center. It would have to be an incredibly long tether. And there are some technical issues with that, which Hannah will dive into. I will. So I did find one article that said there was a possibility of a non-equatorial space elevator. Interesting. (laughs) By this guy named Blaze Gasend, His website's in the sources. I went through his calculations. I cannot speak for their validity, but feel free to take a look for yourself.
1: Yeah. We'll we'll have that in our sources.
0: We'll talk about that later. Yeah. The climber, this can be anything. It's a possibility of a space vehicle that travels up to the tether and then just gets releases into space.
1: I love the, the word climber. In my brain, I just picture like a little bug just
0: climbing up the tether. <laughs> that's so funny. I think of like an old school kid doing the rope climb.
1: Oh, yeah. That's a fun too. So
0: there's lots of possibilities for what this climber could be. Because the Earth is rotating, this object would be in geosynchronous orbit already. So we could harness the counterweights energy. There are some concerns about how you preserve angular velocity. So you would have this object, this climber going up the tether, uh-huh. and it would have an angular velocity. Right. You cannot create or destroy energy. Right. So that angular velocity would have to go somewhere. So there's some concerns that it would cause like a wave down the tether. Right. However, we're really digging in there. In case any of you are listening and wondering about that, there's lots of people who talk about it on the internet.
1: Yes. Check it out. You can look up conservation of energy for a space elevator to kickstart you into this deep dive. (laughs) So
0: effectively, you have a big anchor. You have this geosynchronous, possibly a space station. Right who knows, a hub going around in space, and you have this tether that connects the two. So you have objects that go up the tether, and that's how they get from Earth to space. Right. Great. Beautiful. That that sounds great. Why don't we have one? Well, it's because there's numerous technical challenges, most of which are based around this requirement of this geosynchronous orbit, because 26,000 miles above the Earth is pretty darn far. (laughs) Yeah. Hannah's going to actually talk to us some more about what those technical challenges
1: are. I will, but this next section is pretty beefy. So should we take a break before we dive into that? Let's take a break. Excellent.
0: All right, Anna. I was messing around on my phone during the break like one does. And my mom sent me this cool article about a grad student at the University of Michigan. She defended her dissertation in a skirt made from rejection letters to normalize failure. I think that's so awesome. I think so, too. Her name is Caitlin Kirby. I love that. It's so cool. And she just defended her PhD in environmental sciences and policy. Go, Caitlin.
1: That's so Go awesome. Go, Caitlin. I love that because I have received a number of rejections
0: so in my for everything. For everything. Not just from I got rejected from some grad schools I applied to. I got from rejected. From internships, from jobs. Oh, so many internships and jobs. She talks about getting rejected from journals. If you ever write journal papers. From friends. Uh, completely, yes. And Rejections happen in yes. every aspect of life. We'll link this article on our website and in the sources. It's really important that she's like, when you present a dissertation or when I presented my master's thesis, you really are like, this is my shiny work. Doesn't it look great? And right. You present it in a manner that's like everything went well the whole time.
1: Exactly. Because
0: that's what you're supposed to do.
1: But that's not the true representation. No.
0: It throws out all the hardship you went through,
1: not right. even necessarily just with your research, but right. like you personally. Right. So I think that was really
0: great. And I, I think love it that. is good to normalize failure because it's not failure, it's just steps in your
1: process. As Michelle Obama says, <laughs> so I, can't I was wait. listening to a Michelle Obama interview and she have was giving these book? tips for success. I have read a few passages from the book, but I, I want, want to read the whole thing. I want to read it too. So she says you have to fail your way to success what I loved about this skirt of rejection letters is that no matter what rejection you get in the moment or even weeks after that rejection, you will still feel discouraged and disheartened. But that does not define your career. Completely. Completely. I have been rejected from internships
0: that because I got rejected, I then applied to better internships. Right. Not better, just internships that were more suited to the path I wanted to take.
1: Absolutely, you just like keep working towards your goals. Exactly. And Don't let that define you. There are so many opportunities on Completely. this planet that just because one door closes, there's plenty more that will open up.
0: Completely, I agree. And we're saying all this like it's no big deal, but it took me a really long time. Oh, Understand it took that. me a really I'm long time, and still I'm understanding still it understanding it. Still yes. learning.
1: Absolutely, because in the moment it's just so saddening. All right, so. Should we get back into it, Anna? Should we dig back into it? You ready to talk about some of the technical challenges, Hannah? This yes. is a beefy section. This is a very a good beefy one. section. But I'm excited to talk about it. And I'm sure Anna's excited to chat with me about it, too. I can't wait. All right. So as Anna and I are researching the space elevator topic, we came across this really cool yearly conference that takes place about space elevators. And it's called the International Space Elevator Consortium. And it takes place at the Museum of Flight that's kind of outside Seattle, Washington? Yes. And it actually hasn't always taken place uh, in Seattle, but no. in the bulk of the years that it has been held, it has been at the Museum of Flight. Cool. Yeah. So every year, they started in 2010, and it's been going strong since then. And every year they focus on a different topic. So these topics may vary from space debris mitigation, to design considerations for that earth port or anchor that Anna was talking about, to design considerations for... How are we going to simulate in software the space elevator? So it's really, really awesome. And because of this, these conference, these consortium archives, Anna and I were able to find a lot of the research that we present in this podcast. I want to try to go next year. Me too. Let's try to sign up next year, Anna. I think it sounds fun. Heck yeah, it does. All right. So for the Earthport. So this Earthport, or also known as the anchor that Anna had talked about, This was a specific topic for the International Space Elevator Consortium in 2015, and it used to be called the marine node. The Earthport used to be called a marine node. Oh, were
0: they going to put it in the ocean?
1: Yes. The marine
0: node and the anchor are different things. So the anchor is the physical thing that anchors it into the ground, and then the node would maybe be on top of the water. It could be a ship or something. The infrastructure
1: surrounding that anchor. This marine node or Earthport has to satisfy a large list of requirements that these archive papers went into. Uh, These requirements include providing reel-in and reel-out capabilities for that tether that Anna talked about, also serving as a port for receiving and sending ocean-going vessels. The ocean-going vessels that will come and go from the Earth port will move tether climbers, payloads, supplies, and personnel. The Earth port also needs to be able to provide landing pads for helicopters that are delivering any sort of supplies. It will also serve as a facility for attaching and detaching payloads to and from tether climbers. And it'll have to provide tether climber power. On top of that, it has to provide food, accommodation, and waste management for all the crew that's going to be working that.
0: That's a good point. I feel like it's easy to forget about accommodations for the sheer number of people who would need to work on it to maintain yeah. it, and they would need restroom facilities.
1: That's what I found really fascinating about this paper, was that it was so detailed. It, it'll be linked in the sources. That is a
0: really good point, especially because if it was way out in the ocean, right. they very well may need to live there as well. Like, exactly. It may be far enough away that it's one of those things to be like, okay, you work for 10 days, and right. then you go home for four. Right. Or five, or however many. That's interesting.
1: That part, yeah, I found that interesting too. And the next point is also very fascinating to me. Another challenge that was documented in this, in one of the papers I read, was that how critical and sensitive of a challenge it is to determine a location for the initial Earthport facility. Several factors play into this. One is the international laws that are associated with sea, air, and space, as well as the year-round weather and wave conditions. The underwater topography and access to emergency services is another important factor to look into when figuring out this location for the earthport. And then also, political stability of the country in which it lies next to. So, actually, one of these papers goes into possible cities or locations where an earthport can be placed near. That's interesting. So, that just
0: in and of itself creates a lot of challenges. Yeah. But like, what is this best area? Because it needs to be away from everything, but at the same time have access to everything easily.
1: Right. It's not only just the like engineering of it, but also the politics, the resources, accessibility. Exactly. Everything surrounding that. Another topic or challenges is the geonode. The geonode, or as Anna referred to as the counterweight, is envisioned to be like the central harbor in space or a galactic harbor. And it also has to provide various functions. Power generation, propulsion, payload processing, operation controls, so the local autonomy for collision avoidance and debris detection. And this is incredibly important because there's a lot of space debris and space junk. There's
0: a lot of stuff out there. Yeah. We might
1: actually do a whole episode on that in the future.
0: There's this fear that a lot of stuff could start to build up in space. Right. Even the smallest piece of space junk can cause a problem. Actually, very recently, there was like a really small piece of something Put a hole in the International Space Station. Yeah. Because it's moving so fast in orbit. Right. Even the smallest items can cause catastrophic level damage.
1: Yes. And then also with all the launches that occur for satellites, over time these satellites are decommissioned and they just hang out out there. We're not deorbiting them. So the counterweight, it also has to provide various functions. Power generation, may that be a mix of solar and space nuclear power propulsion, all objects within the geonode must actively maintain orbital position in order to avoid collisions. That counterweight also has to like make sure it's we can't not can't just ban a other
0: objects from going through that orbit. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah. The geonode also needs to have tether dynamics control, like the anchor does, and then provide a port for refueling for spacecraft. So basically for the geonode and for the Earth port, the bulk of the engineering challenges just come from the sheer volume of tasks it must accomplish. And then there's also that major question, if this would be a huge
0: spaceport mm-hmm. in this very high geosynchronous orbit, right? what are we going to do? Are we going to assemble it here and then try to launch the parts up? Or are we going to try to assemble it in space? Right. Either way, it's huge. The ISS took years and billions of dollars to assemble.
1: Billions of dollars and also just years of working out how they were going to do it and amongst all the countries that they were going to share this project with.
0: They relied heavily on inflatables to try to get away from weight and mass and that kind of stuff. To do that on this scale, this would be a scale significantly larger than the ISS. It would be huge, incredibly complicated, not impossible. Yeah. But very
1: complicated. But it would be world changing. Yes. Anna's is going be. to get into the cost savings of this later. But it's incredible, and yes. a lot of countries would want to back this to yeah. benefit from it. Yes, I completely agree. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and move to talking about the tether now. The tether is the primary technical challenge of the space elevator. It's the most cited reason for one not existing right now. Yes. The tether needs to be incredibly strong, at least 50 gigapascals of tensile strength to survive the space debris, satellite junk, year-round weather conditions that it would be subject to. And then it's going to experience some pretty
0: extreme tension because of that object in orbit.
1: Exactly. So various materials have been looked into to support this tether. One is graphene, another is carbon nanotubes, and another is diamond nanothreads.
0: Things like conventional steel, even some aerospace-grade steels. Are not not strong enough. Even close. Carbon fiber, everything that you're like, that's a strong material, it's not even close.
1: It's not close because of just the fact that the tether has to survive space debris, that tensile strength. And if the tether were to snap, it would have
0: catastrophic fallout.
1: Oh, yeah. So we need to ensure that it will not snap. Essentially, the tether can never snap.
0: Right. If it snaps close to the Earth, you have this geosynchronous object orbiting with this...
1: Massive. massive tether yeah
0: in space mm-hmm. it would wipe out satellites it could do serious damage you'd lose communication completely it would be horrible so right. then if it snapped close to that satellite this tether could actually wrap around the earth multiple times yeah and this would be an incredibly it would have a really large diameter
1: just like think about and that. if That's it fell crazy. from the sky
0: and hit the earth it could it would kill everything in its path mm-hmm. so the tether can never snap and out of its path. Oh, completely! It would be catastrophic levels of damage. Mm-hmm. So the tether can never snap. It Meaning cannot. Whatever material we use has to be a guarantee that it will never break.
1: Exactly, Anna.
0: I was reading that and I was like, it would wrap around the Earth that several terrifying. times. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. That's so terrifying. <laughs> yeah. It just means I think one article said in order to do this, we would only get to build it once, and we would have to build it right. Absolutely. So. All right. Sorry, didn't interrupt you.
1: Oh no problem. Sorry about graphene. Yes, research into graphene exploded when Professor Sir Andre Game and Professor Sir Kostya Novoselov of the University of Manchester discovered and isolated a single atomic layer of carbon for the first time in 2004. This single atomic layer thick, honeycomb like formation of graphene is flexible. It's nearly 200 times stronger than steel. 200 times. That's That's crazy. crazy.
0: I think that's called a fullerene structure, that
1: honeycomb. I think that's called fullerene. And it's better at conducting electricity and heat than any other conductor. I think that's awesome.
0: Yeah, they're actually looking at it pretty heavily in use in heat dissipation fins Mm -hmm. and microelectronics.
1: Oh, cool. That's awesome. I just said 200 times stronger than steel. That's really
0: impressive. (laughs) It's nuts. Go try to snap a steel rod. You won't be able to do it.
1: Uh Uh-uh. And can you imagine trying to snap a tiny atomic layer thick honeycomb like formation of graphene? <laughs> it would be impossible.
0: Oh, I don't even think you can hold it. <laughs> like yeah.
1: The 200 times stronger than steel property is not useful right now because this is for graphene nanoplates that are typically 400 nanometers long. That's ridiculously small. Tiny. And the tiny, yeah. So I found this really great visualization in an article I was reading about graphene, and it's going to be linked in the sources. To give an idea of how tiny these nanoplates of graphene are, look at the edge of a piece of printer paper. The edge of a piece of printer paper is 100 microns thick, or 100,000 nanometers. That's impressive. Yeah. So you could fit 250 of these graphene nanoplates across the edge of that piece of paper. That's a really cool metaphor, visual. Right, tiny, these are tiny. So you need graphene chains in order to form this future tether. A lot of research is being conducted right now to determine efficient processes for the development of these chains. You're going to think, why can't we just glue these nanoplates together with some sort of polymer? Yes, you can. And you'd think that would make a stronger composite, but by adding these points of weakness, you're not making that strong of a composite material. Another solution is using CVD, chemical vapor deposition. And from bringing this up, this we realized that we both did CVD research individually that we hadn't realized.
0: CVD is painful to do it is so it takes a really long time and some really high heat
1: yeah so what cvd is is that you're just running gaseous reactants through this tube over a substrate so what ann and i basically did in college was we sat in the lab and we would run this chamber we would run gases in it and just sit there (laughs) it's so boring sit there to see things grow that we can't see (laughs) it took forever i hated it i never want to do it again never Oh, but man. I didn't have to I, sit with it, so
0: that's horrible. I'm sorry.
1: I was very impressed by the PhD students who were doing those experiments. We've done it for a year thesis. Yeah. I
0: had to do it for like a year and a half, I think. And I was like, at the end it was done. Yeah. I remember when I did my last set of samples. I was like, never again.
1: I, I had to do a C V D for regularly for a year for my senior year thesis and then over two years as a research student, as an undergraduate researcher, and that was pretty chill. I would go maybe once a week in the lab. So yeah, kudos to the PhD students who do that doing this work out there. That is painful. That is painful. We value you. We believe in you. You got this. So going back to chemical vapor deposition (coughs) for graphene. Chemical vapor deposition specifically for graphene involves gaseous reactants that are methane and hydrogen and they flow over a metal substrate as that hot methane approaches the surface of the metal a reaction takes place it essentially serves as a catalyst exactly yes it catalyzes hydrogen is removed from that carbon in the methane molecule and the carbon from that methane lands on the metal surface and starts to link up with other carbon atoms leading to graphene woo woohoo so you would think okay this is awesome so you get a material film of graphene on the substrate now right Nope. Unfortunately, if you zoom into that metal substrate, it's not perfect at the microscopic level. There are cracks at the microscopic level, and this leads to discontinuities or imperfections in the sheet. As I was doing research into this topic, I found that in 2017, a team at Peking University in Beijing, China, announced that they were the first to make a near Perfect graphene at a scale of 500 millimeters by 50 millimeters. That's actually pretty large. It's pretty large. Yeah. That's crazy. And they call this material single crystal graphene. It showed a tensile strength of 130 gigapascals. And So 500
0: millimeters by 50 millimeters. So it'd be like really skinny and long? Yeah. Okay. I'm just trying to imagine what that looks like. Yeah. I'm picturing like, you know, like crate paper that comes in that big roll no what is um or just like ribbon like yes. a long piece
1: of ribbon i can see the ribbon yeah yeah okay yeah skinny long like that nice satin ribbon you would buy for like fancy yeah, christmas gifts exactly holidays are coming up i, I gotta can't do wait christmas shopping This crystal graphene, the single crystal graphene, showed a tensile strength of 130 gigapascals. That's impressive. So impressive, especially because, as I mentioned earlier, the tether strength needs to be a minimum of 50 gigapascals.
0: So that would be enough. Yes. It's just we would need a lot of it. Exactly. A lot of it. It actually probably would reach the point where we would have material constraints.
1: Yeah. Like, could we even get enough? Right. (laughs) And then where do we make all of it in bulk? Like, do we need to make a giant chamber? Because methane is natural gas. Right. That'd be a lot of natural gas. That would be a lot. Yeah. Heck yeah. Huh. Interesting. Another issue with CVD chemical vapor deposition, is how do you remove the graphene from the metal substrate? You could dissolve it with a specific agent for that metal, but a lot more research needs to be done into how do you do that without messing ruining up. your sheet. Cause then you right. have this incredibly thin sheet that is just hanging out <laughs> hopefully cur-
0: perfectly. Uh, I'm just imagining like a wet piece of tissue paper. Like how the heck do you pick that up? <laughs> like you don't. <laughs>
1: um, so basically graphene is not at a point to be used for space elevators and it's being heavily researched in laboratories around the world so we can learn how to better grow and utilize this magic material so cool it is very cool just the like 200 times stronger than steel aspect
0: that's nuts
1: it blows my mind so now let's move into carbon nanotubes
0: so yeah hen and i both did research on carbon nanotubes in college we did i did not do research on the standard honeycomb kind though Mm -mm. i did it on what's called amorphous which is just no shape (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> like it was in a, it was like in a tube shape, but the actual carbon of the tube
1: yeah,
0: didn't have like that nice honeycomb structure. It was much more randomized.
1: So it's not as strong. They are really cool. You know, like learning about CNTs cool. initially as an undergrad, I was just blown away. They're kind of a hot topic now too. They are. You show
0: up, if you'd like type this in on Google Scholar, you'll get hundreds of thousands of hits.
1: Yeah. Because they can be utilized everywhere to improve strength of materials. Let's go back in time. In 1991, carbon nanotubes were discovered in Japan by Sumio Ijima. Carbon nanotubes are essentially rolled sheets of graphene. In 2014, the Obayashi Corporation in Japan worked on a study about space elevators. And the study said that the tether could be composed of carbon nanotubes and humans would be using the space elevator by 2050. I feel like that's pretty sporty. That is sporty. I feel like sporty. it would take us 20 years just to make it. Yes, so interestingly, they believe that the carbon nanotubes could be used to create super strong material with tensile strengths of up to 50 gigapascals. But a paper was published in 2016. It's called The Great Reduction of a Carbon Nanotube's Mechanical Performance by a Few Topological Defects. Huh. And I'll have it in the sources. What this paper says is that despite numerous efforts to grow CNT fibers... To achieve a high tensile strength, they can only find that it achieves a maximum strength of a few gigapascals. Interesting. CNTs are not strong enough, and the research focus shifted to graphene and diamond nanothreads.
0: Diamond nanothreads are so cool.
1: Yes, they are.
0: Because when everybody's like, wait, I feel like when you're like, the strongest material, I think in my brain, or most people's brain, goes to diamond. Mm-hmm. So it's really neat to kind of... It's kind of the brainchild of carbon nanotubes in diamond.
1: Yes. Because you're thinking about this really fancy diamond, but then they're nano. What? What? <laughs> so da- diamond nanothreads are even thinner than carbon nanotubes. They incorporate these kinks of hydrogen in the carbon's hollow structure, which reduces brittleness and adds to the flexibility of the thread. Huh. Yeah. It's interesting. That's so cool. It is really cool. It's shown that diamond nanothreads exhibit insane mechanical properties with an ideal strength as high as 101 gigapascals. That's really impressive. It's it's amazing. But similar to graphene, research efforts are focused on how to build these DNTs up to form larger nanostructures. And I found many technical papers covering in depth how groups are trying to do this. And one of them I looked at focused on how to create nano meshes and nano foams hmm. out of diamond nano threads. And I'll have that linked in our sources. I'm just exp-
0: ex- like thinking about like a whipped cream can.
1: <laughs> right, nano foam, <laughs> <laughs> nano
0: whipped cream. You can't see it; it's there. <laughs> we promise. We promise it's like one of those trendy restaurants and that they like, I feel like they joke about it in movies all the time. <laughs> They're like with some diamond nano foam. Diamond nano foam. Oh, yeah. Instead of gold leaf. This, gold, this leaf is like gold leaf, yes. The hot
1: thing to have on gold desserts. Gold leaf is the hot thing. Yes. I don't know
0: why. It doesn't add flavor. It just makes it look pretty.
1: Oh, my gosh. I've seen this. Uh, I totally watch these YouTube videos where they'll go and compare restaurants from like, um, they'll like compare cakes where... One's a $5 cake, one's a $10 cake, one's a $1,000 cake. Oh, my cake.
0: God. Yeah, I totally watch this video. Right? Too. They're on BuzzFeed. Yes. Yeah, I watch this all the time.
1: Um, and on YouTube. And the $1,000 cake will have gold leaf on it, but will taste cra- worse than the <laughs> $5 cake.
0: <laughs> I you. I love pastries. Like, you get, you get, like, a patisserie case or something of mm, those really fancy pastries. Yes. But I also love a grocery store sheet cake with buttercream frosting. Oh, heck oh, yeah. Oh, my God.
1: Oh, yeah. Or hostess cupcakes. I'll eat those. <laughs>
0: I just love a grocery store cheese cake with buttercream frosting. Oh, so Not good. whipped cream frosting. No, buttercream frosting. So tasty. I
1: think what also adds to the deliciousness of it is the affordability of it. You're like, I'm doing
0: okay. You're like, this whole thing costs 15 bucks, so I can eat three pieces. It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, so oh good. Oh, man. All right. The point is to be like, we have these insane technical challenges. Why yes. are we continuing to explore this? And it's because it has some pretty impressive advantages right they're crazy advantages but you want to take a quick break first
1: that sounds great anna let's go take a quick let's break. let's go find some grocery store <laughs> share some chocolate cake
0: <laughs> oh my god that would be awesome You ready to learn about some advantages of the space elevator? Yes, I am. So the biggest one that comes up everywhere would be cost. So currently, the cost of a space launch is approximately $5,600 per pound. I calculated this from the Falcon Heavy GTO orbit, assuming it would be an expendable vehicle. Gotcha. Kind of worst case. Mm -hmm. So that would be $5,600 per pound on the Falcon Heavy GTO.
1: That is expensive. Which is pretty
0: hefty. With a space elevator, this cost could go down to about $200 per pound. That's amazing. Looking at some estimates. The tricky thing is it doesn't exist, so how would we really know? Right. I think it's going to be one of those things that we try to calculate how much it costs to build, Mm -hmm. and then we completely underestimate it,
1: you know? Right. I could see that going that way, too. But if, ideally, everything works out, $5,600 to $200 per pound... It's still impressive. Very impressive.
0: One of the major pros, again, besides cost, would be large-scale manufacturing in a zero-G environment. So we kind of talked about this with the ISS. The ISS was... Chunks were built on Earth, and then the rest was... The whole thing was assembled in space. Right now, if corporations could do that, if you could build a satellite in space, you would save a lot of money by not having to launch this whole huge satellite, you mm-hmm. can launch small pieces. Right. It's not done, because it's incredibly expensive to try to manufacturing anything in the zero-G environment. Mm-hmm. But having this ease to get cargo up to space could lead to a very large increase in zero-gene manufacturing, which could lead to things like space colonization or colonization on the moon or Mars, for example.
1: And that's why a lot of these papers that we read refer to the counterweight as a sort of central harbor. Yeah,
0: exactly. This idea to be like you take people up there and then they could go to Mars or the moon or maybe we would have at this point, we would have like satellites that are space communities uh-huh. or stuff like that. Like you ever see... Xenon girl, of the twenty first century, oh like one God. of those. Such a fun movie! It's a great movie. I love that movie. I tried to be an alien for Halloween one year, and everybody thought I was just Xenon, which was great. That's I took great. that. I thought that was a great, yeah, a great permutation of my Halloween costume. Essentially, right now, establishing and supplying a six to eight person space science station on the moon is probably the very limit of our capabilities. We can really only take a few people to space at a time. It's dangerous. It's expensive. There's all these talks in the future, like NASA has this Artemis program. There's a whole other thing where Blue Origin coupled with Northrop Grumman and a few other companies. But even then, the number of people we can get to space, it will still be expensive, and we will really not be able to get more than I could imagine 10 people to the moon at one time. Mm-hmm. So it would very much limits space colonization. However, allowing hundreds or even thousands of tons to be launched into space every day would allow us to colonize, and some websites to colonize these other worlds, which I think is a very futuristic statement to reuse your adjective another big one that's kind of along those lines would be space tourism so the space elevator could provide a way that most of us could visit space and even stay for a while if we wanted to Mm -hmm. that book artemis the guy who wrote the martian andy Weir. he wrote artemis it is kind of about a artemis seems to be the hot name for things in the moon (laughs) (laughs) it's funny enough in mythology artemis and apollo were twins so they were the moon and the sun
1: beautiful fun fact fun
0: i love it Artemis, which I believe was the god of the moon and animals,
1: is a I woman, don't actually. Know.
0: Most people assume it's a man, but Artemis was a woman. Apollo was a man. Random facts for you today. <laughs> uh, in that book, it has like a colonization on the moon, a colony on the moon that people live in, but some people come visit. So it's kind of like that idea. Then one of the other major ideas is clean power. So there are a lot of debates right now about the economics of establishing solar power satellites to provide Earth with clean power. The idea behind that is that you could harness a lot more of the sun's energy if you didn't have atmosphere diluting those sun's rays. However, there's a lot of economic debate regarding that. Definitely something you can dig into if you're interested in it. Regardless of the economics of it, it would require the capability to launch enormous quantities of materials into space. Right. So really, only a space elevator could give us that capability. And along those lines, too, it would provide more and cheaper satellites. Satellites provide us with everything. direct TV, weather satellites cellular internet everything 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 satellites are wonderful and then i've had some other articles that talk about some environmental benefits and i'm not entirely sure i agree with this it's one of the first articles that pops up which is why i wanted to mention it and i'll link it below i just don't know how much i agree with this the first one being that reusable space elevators could displace disposable rockets and spacecraft reducing waste there's some questions i have about this to reach a lot of orbits, we will always need a disposable rocket. Not always. But we will probably most likely always have a disposable rocket to get to a lot of, not necessarily the first stage. But in this case, the first stage, if you watch SpaceX launches, that first stage comes back to Earth. Uh-huh. That first stage would be the space elevator chassis. Okay. For lack of a better term. Some of these orbits for the second stage, I feel like it would just be incredibly difficult to get it back to the space elevator and then go back down versus having it just burn up in the atmosphere
1: so going back to what you just said you're saying that this article says that space elevators would eliminate eliminate the the need for disposable rockets yes
0: i don't think we will ever be able to eliminate the need for a disposable rocket i think there are some orbits that we just the cost of getting the stage back would be
1: so costly i see what you're saying you know what i mean so you're saying that there are some orbits that we couldn't achieve with
0: i don't think we couldn't achieve it i just think we wouldn't eliminate it
1: i just think like some orbits because essentially to save that you would have to get it back to that counterweight sorry envisioning like getting a spacecraft back to the counterweight yeah and then it would come down a climber yes, exactly back to the earth port i just think that would be tricky for some orbits not all orbits
0: but for some orbits i think that would be pretty hard to do to land on the space harbor because you would have to get it back there yeah that could be pretty tricky. It could be tricky. I don't know for certain. I'm sure these people don't either. Right. I just don't think it would completely eliminate the need for a reusable rocket stage. Could it lessen it? Very likely. Yes. I just don't. Think I it would eliminate definitely
1: it. think it'll definitely. I definitely think it will lessen. This website the just need. made some pretty hefty claims.
0: They also talk about enabling the development of solar collecting satellites. Completely agree. The one that I don't really get is it talks about how it would get rid of the need for propellants and explosives. So I think by the term explosive, they mean like a rocket engine. To get the climber up the tether, it needs to have energy to get up there. Right. You're still fighting Earth's gravity. Just because it has a string doesn't mean it can automatically (laughs) go up that string. Right. You're still going to need some kind of propellant. Yes. Even if it's an electrical system. You're going to need something.
1: So is this paper assuming that it's just going to have some sort of wheels? It's not a paper. It's just a website. And it doesn't go into it. (laughs) Okay, perfect.
0: That's amazing. It's just one of the first websites that pops up. Yeah. So that's one of those things that i wanted to call out.
1: It is possible. (laughs) It's a good
0: lesson. Not all the information on the internet is true. Maybe. Yeah. So I just want to bring some of that up. There are some pretty lofty claims to the space elevator. Space elevator will be amazing. It will not solve all of our problems. (laughs) Right. However, there's still all those points to be like, Right now, space is not owned by anybody. And I hope very dearly that it remains that way forever. But I'm sure one day we will get into debates about the international domain of space. But I hope it oh, just yeah. remains like the
1: ocean. Space policy is a very hot topic in law. It is. It is. So on that note,
0: kind of what sparked, I think, our desire to do the space elevator was it's referenced in pop culture a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. If you were to just look up references to space elevators, you will get insanely long list for yes. books movies video games oh you name it's it insane mm-hmm. i just picked out two of my favorites i just picked out one that just stood out to me so, <laughs> i was just like there's too many there's i'm hundreds. overwhelmed by all the references
0: so the first one i thought was fun was charlie and the great glass elevator for all of you who did not know this charlie and the chocolate factory i'm gonna spoil it for you i'm just assuming you have seen it <laughs> <laughs> at the end he gets in this glass elevator uh-huh. with willy wonka yes and they go to space there is actually a sequel to that book. It's also a book, if you didn't know that. It's a great book by Roald Dahl. <laughs> he also wrote the BFG. Roald Dahl wrote many beautiful books.
1: So many beautiful My favorite was uh, James and the... Giant Peach! Peach. Oh, I so love that good.
0: one, too. Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator is the sequel to the novel by Roald Dahl. And it technically isn't an elevator in space, Well, well, it technically is an elevator in space, but it's not technically a space elevator. Yeah. But it is an elevator that goes to space. Right. I have read the book a very long time ago, but the elevator does go to space. And then the other one is actually one of my favorite movies is called Mr. Nobody. I have not seen that. It's on Netflix. It used to be. I think it still is. Jared Leto was in it. He played the Joker in Suicide Squad. Uh Uh-huh. He's in a lot of stuff. He was also in Dallas Buyers Club. Essentially Mr. Nobody, people descend to the surface of Mars from a docked spaceship
1: via a space elevator. Oh, cool. It's a great movie. You should all go check it out. Very cool. And then
0: Hannah, you have one too,
1: right? Yeah. So I just I just skimmed the lists and It's a hefty list. Uh, insane. Would recommend Googling it. Two games stood out to me Halo and Call of Duty. Do I play them? No. I don't either. My brother <laughs> does. Do a lot of my friends? Yes. Yeah so they both feature space elevators in their games fun yeah it's fun
0: that's so cool i think it's a great idea i hope i i understand that a lot of technical challenges i don't know if we'll see one in our lifetimes but i Mm -hmm. definitely think one day we will have one and that would be pretty incredible i think it's just the best way to make space access convenient for what we know of currently yes exactly i think it's so easy to put limitations based on what we can fathom yes I actually, we're going to go a little existential here. Let's go. I think about that a lot when they look at planets and they're like, well, that planet can't sustain life. And I'm like, okay, it can't sustain carbon-based life as we know it. Right. Why does that mean other life forms could not have evolved to survive in those conditions? Right, Anna. That drives exactly. me crazy.
1: That drives me nuts. I'm like, we don't that know so. that there's no life there. We, we just don't. know there's
0: no carbon-based life forms people right. could not live on that planet right as we know them as people
1: as we know them as people and for the requirements we need to survive
0: yes there's no water we need water yes. our life forms that we know need water
1: but there's like you think about it like deep underwater there's creatures stuff, yeah sustain okay. incredibly harsh environments they
0: involved they assumed there was no life down there because they figured nothing could survive in there but right. stuff can
1: but stuff can so that drives me crazy I drives hate me say nuts that. too i don't Anna. agree i am on your side thank you i know you would be you always are.
0: <laughs> always <laughs> Except for the fact that I like to keep my apartment as a nice sixty-six degrees,
1: <laughs> and mine is pretty warm for Anna.
0: It's <laughs> pleasant in here. I'm not even gonna let you.
1: I did turn it out during the break. <laughs> um, I just get really warm. Uh, <laughs> but yeah. Regardless, we're still on each other's sides. Oh, completely, completely. I
0: just even completely forgot to shop. Oh, life in space. Yeah, life in space. So, yeah. I think that's a good point to always remember and to be like. You can't allow the limits of our understanding to prevent our thoughts from going farther. Exactly. You know, we yeah. Be able to
1: that. We gotta we gotta think about the wild things because the when we things. do that, then we work towards them. And then we, if we don't get to that solution, we'll probably yeah. come up with some other cool technologies. Completely. Exactly. I agree. Like cell phones, N- completely unfathomable. Yeah. The internet. What the heck? Who? What the heck? Who would've known?
0: Who even podcasts?
1: Podcasts. Actually, crazy. though.
0: I know. So crazy. <laughs>
1: All right. On that note, you want to go into sources? Let's do it. Do you want to go first? Yes. Well, yours are
0: so nicely organized. Thank
1: you, Anna. Mine I feel not. <laughs> like if I just throw a bunch of links there, it's sometimes hard for me to remember what the links were actually referencing. It is. Yes. And sometimes the links don't include the titles. They'll just be a gibberish of letters. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: <laughs> yeah, that does happen.
1: My references. Uh, one of them was a the journal article that I talked about, The Great Reduction of a Carbon Nanotube's Mechanical Performance by cool. a Few Topological Defects by Lian Zhu, Jinlin Wang, and Feng Ding, and that will be linked in our website. Another one was an interview with Adrian Nixon, the CEO of NYXOR, a company specializing in graphene research. Uh... N- uh f- the bulk of my research came from the International Space Elevator Consortium archive and these papers were titled one design considerations for the space elevator apex anchor and geonode uh two space elevators a history <laughs> and three I just think of Hogwarts a history right that's actually right yes <laughs> oh man i wish i could have gone to hogwarts don't we all
0: don't even go there i'll just get sad
1: i'll get sad too Three, design considerations of the space elevator earthport. Those are such good ones. Yeah. It looks like you have another one too. Yes. And then one was a space news article that'll be linked on our website. And then the last one was, um, that really technical paper I talked about for diamond nanothreads that what's called diamond nanothread based 2d and 3d materials, diamond Meshes and nanofoams by Julian Silvera and Andre Muniz. And that will also be linked on our website. That's awesome. And Anna, you want to talk about yours? Yes. So I had an article that kind of talks
0: about the possibility of a non-equatorial space elevator. uh, Something you can check out if you want to. Another article that was actually from the... It's the ISIC, the International Space Elevator Consortium website. It was just titled, Why Do I Want a Space Elevator? I actually thought that was really interesting. I get a lot of information from that. And then I have the link to space elevators in fiction on Wikipedia.
1: Awesome. And then the Curse... Oh, and then I have a
0: website that um kind of breaks down the basics of satellite orbits. Awesome.
1: Yeah. Um, and then as I was saying, the Khrzogast video that we will yeah,
0: that's really fun. He has great videos. I never heard of him until Hannah brought this one up. Yeah. Um, and they're really interesting. They talk about everything, not even just space related. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm. All
0: right. You ready to wrap us
1: up? Let's do it, Anna.
0: So, if any of you enjoyed this, please tell your friends rate us. Yeah. And review us on Apple Podcasts. I feel like every podcast I listen to ends with that.
1: <laughs> feel free to send us a note on our website yeah, if you want. Yeah,
0: on our website um, but it is rocket dot com and then our Instagram but it is rocket science and then we have a Twitter but it is RS Heck but it yeah. is rocket science was t- too long. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, thanks for joining us guys. Yeah, let us uh, reach out to us. We want to hear from you. We do. Um, so, oh I'm my bad, god. No. <laughs> until until next Next time time, space cadets Cadets, t minus three three, two one lift off (laughs) man that's fun every time